Jesus to die for us. And Lord, as we engage in this new series called Redeemed, I pray that you will help us to see what redemption looks like really lived out. We use the term grace, we use terms like redeemed and salvation, but Lord, help us to come to a fresh understanding of the meaning of these rich terms and how they aren't just words, but they are realities that can transform us from the inside out. Lord, we, we confess that we all have failed in many, many ways down through the years, and we will continue to fail at times as long as we live on this earth, but we thank you for your grace, Lord. Please help us to see the transforming work of your grace um, in this time as we open your word right now and over the coming weeks as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I came across a book that was, was quite interesting. It was called The Incomplete Book of Failures. You may think, wow, that's quite the uplifting book. It's interesting if you read the Amazon reviews on it, a lot of them are talking about how humorous the book is, how, how people just die laughing. Well, not literally, but you know what I mean. It's, it's hilarious to read about some of these failures that have happened down through human history. And that's what the book is all about, just chronicling these failures that are a part of humanity. For instance, the book introduces us to Arthur Pedrick. You may not know his name, but he was an inventor. He actually has patents for 162 of his inventions. You may think, wow, that, that is tremendous. Now, the reason he's in the book on failure is that none of these inventions actually made any difference in the practical world. None of them were, even, were ever offered for sale or ever implemented beyond his initial invention itself. He invented things like a car that you could drive from the back seat. Not sure what the benefit is, but you could do it with his invention. He invented a golf ball that you could steer while it's flying through the air. And if you're a golfer, you may think, hey, that would be very helpful. But figuratively speaking, it never got off the ground. And then he also invented this way to irrigate the deserts of the world by taking ice from the, the polar ice caps and actually making balls of them. And then he created this elaborate system and this plan of basically like these cannons, kind of like pea shooters, to shoot these balls of ice and snow all the way from the polar ice caps to the, the, the deserts to, to water. And there was just this continual supply of snow and ice coming from the polar ice caps. Now, we know it never really happened. It's labeled as a failure. There's another story of an elderly woman in London who, who had a cat who was stuck up in a tree. And so she called the firefighters. They came and very graciously and carefully got the cat down successfully. And she was so thankful that then she invited them in for some tea. And they enjoyed their tea together. They, they said yes. And so then it came time for them to leave. And um, they received another round of thank yous. And then they went out and they were waving goodbye, driving away. The problem, though, is that as they backed out of her driveway, they backed right over her cat. The cat that she, they rescued, now they just killed. You know, ultimately, I guess it winds up as a failure, even though it wasn't intentional, but kind of sad. Um, you know, we may laugh at some of these types of things because, I mean, there is kind of a, a sad humor in, in some of these types of failures. But the reality is most failures that people face in life are not funny at all. They're incredibly painful. They, they leave a sense of shame, a sense of regret and remorse that for some people is, is really hard to shake. Some people go around their lives with this kind of cloud hanging over them of, of shame and regret. And so that no matter how successful they appear on the outside, 
inside, they are riddled with insecurities and with anxiety, feeling like they can never be good enough. There are others who have managed in various ways to try to suppress that regret and suppress that sense of shame, at least to some degree, but, but it's always still kind of nagging there in the background. And there are others still, though, who have found a way to fully release that sense of shame and regret from their failures. Because everyone fails at times, but they're able to, to release that and live with a significant sense of freedom and with joy and with hope. And I think this is what we all want, but at the same time, we also know what it's like to experience shame, to experience regret, and to struggle at times to forgive ourselves for the wrongs that we do. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're, we're starting today a three-week series called Redeemed. And this series is looking at the, the Apostle Peter in a time near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry when Peter failed miserably. One of the, the best-known failures in human history when Peter denied even knowing Jesus. But the cool thing in this case study about Peter, yes, he probably did experience major shame, major regret, but there was also redemption and restoration and freedom and joy and new life and transformation that Peter experiences after Jesus is resurrected. So we're going to have a couple weeks leading up to Easter that are not as happy. And then after the resurrection, we'll see this restoration that Peter experiences that, that can give us tremendous joy and hope as well. Now, I want to give us some background on Peter before we dig into this. So who was Peter? Well, first of all, Peter was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. One of the first encounters that Peter had with Jesus was when Jesus went and said, Peter, can I use your boat? He'd already known of Jesus some, but Peter said, hey, can I use your boat? Because Jesus was teaching large crowds of people, and so um, Peter took him out a little ways in the boat because the water and then the shoreline created a natural amphitheater um, effect. And so after the sermon was done, Jesus said, why don't you put your boat out to deeper water? Put down your nets. Peter said, hey, we've been fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. Uh, But he, he listened to Jesus anyway, put down his nets, had this amazing, miraculous catch of fish. And then after some conversation, Jesus looked at Peter and said, from now on, you will fish for people. From now on, you will fish for people. So he was a fisherman, but then he became a disciple of Jesus. He became one of the 12 men in whom Jesus invested to equip them to carry on his ministry after Jesus was no longer here on this earth. And so, so Jesus, Peter becomes a disciple of Jesus, and not only a disciple, but he becomes basically a frontrunner among the disciples, an outspoken frontrunner, that is. Um, you see, every time the 12 disciples are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter is always listed first. He is a frontrunner among the disciples. He is part of the inner three uh, around Jesus, uh, of Peter, James, and John. He is one of those, and he essentially serves as the spokesperson for the disciples. I mean, you see, most of the time when Jesus asks a question of the disciples— Who's the first one to respond? Peter. Yes, Peter is frequently the first to respond. Um, Now, one interesting fact about Peter is that that is not his original name. His original name was Simon. But then Jesus said to him um, that that your, your name will be Cephas, 
You may wonder, okay, Cephas, that's not Peter. Where does that come in? Well, Cephas is an Aramaic word that means rock. Petros, or Peter, is the Greek equivalent that also means rock. And so Peter's name means rock. It's the name that Jesus gave to him, but there's some deep irony there. Because throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter was anything but a stable rock. I mean, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he was more impulsive. He was basically an impulsive um, supporter of Jesus. He, he was definitely a supporter of Jesus. He was a huge fan of Jesus and a follower. But he was impulsive. And people who are impulsive, um, they can have moments of brilliance and greatness, but they're also quite unpredictable. And Peter, time and time again, partly because of this outspoken and impulsive nature, he at times spoke even though he didn't know what he was saying and why he was saying it, but he'd still speak just to fill the gap. There are times when he stuck his foot in his mouth over and over and over. I think, for instance, Mark chapter 8. Let me read now this passage for us. Verses 31 and 32, it says, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So, so Jesus is telling about the pinnacle of his mission. That he's going to die, but then he's going to be resurrected. It says Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus is talking about the core of his mission here. He has to die and be resurrected. Peter then takes him aside, speaks right to his face, and, and begins to rebuke him. Saying, Jesus, no, this isn't the way it's going to be. I mean, who else has the audacity to rebuke Jesus to his face? Peter does. Peter does. That's Peter for you, an impulsive supporter. I mean, he has a good heart. He's working hard. But at times, it's a bit misguided uh, in his passion. So that, that's a brief background on Peter. Now let's zoom ahead to this time around his denial of Jesus. So, so Jesus' prediction that Peter will deny him. The context of this is that it takes place during the Last Supper. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. He's having a meal with him. He's talking a lot about how he will die. So I would guess that even though earlier in, in Jesus' ministry, Peter pushed back when Jesus talked about his death, I would guess that at this point it's, it's probably starting to sink in at least some to Peter and the other disciples that Jesus is going to die. Jesus goes on, to indicate that there will be a betrayal. A betrayal. He says, one of you will betray me. Ends up being Judas, one of the disciples. And then even during the meal, Judas leaves to implement his plan of betraying Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. Then Jesus, um, at, at the end of the Last Supper, also indicates that there will be a scattering of Jesus' disciples. So now I invite you to follow along in Mark chapter 14 as I read verses 27 through 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And so here we, we see Jesus picturing himself as a shepherd. And when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep, meaning his disciples, 
all scatter. And it's interesting to see what's, what's happening here because Jesus gives hope. He says, okay, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you in the Galilee. He, he will be reunited with them. He, he refers to the fact that death doesn't have the final word in the story. He will rise again. But let's look at Peter's response here. Peter's reaction to, to what Jesus says about you all be scattered. You all fall away. Peter is once again acting as a spokesperson. He's the first one to speak up. And he says in verse 29, even if all fall away, I will not. I will not. Now, one of the things I see in this response is a major self-centeredness. Because Jesus has just said, I'm going to rise. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, to me, an appropriate response, not saying this is the response I'd have in that circumstance, but in, I mean, given time to process, an appropriate response to, would be to just express perhaps amazement. Wow, Jesus, you're, you're really going to come back to life? I'd probably be in that context confused about what else is going to happen and why it's happening. But at the same time, I mean, what an amazing pronouncement that Jesus is not just going to die, but he's going to rise again. But Peter is not thinking about that. Instead, Peter is thinking about himself. He says, you know what? Even if all fall away, I will not. He's not at all latching on to this topic about the resurrection. He's just, he's getting really, uh, he's getting defensive here. Jesus just said, you're all going to fall away. So Peter then focuses on himself and says, I won't. I'm going to make it through. So you see this self-centeredness in there, and it's based on also a self-confidence. I mean, he, he is very uh, confident in himself here. He's basically saying, Jesus, you are wrong. It's funny how Peter doesn't have any problem questioning Jesus here. Um, and other parts of Jesus' ministry too. Jesus, you're wrong. You may say all are going to fall away, but I'm going to be the exception. He has incredible confidence in himself. And I mean, you have to say, okay, he has high aspirations. I mean, I think he genuinely intended to remain faithful to Jesus. I mean, he definitely has passion here. I mean, he's declaring, even if all fall away, I won't. Later on, he insists emphatically they won't fall away. He has the passion. He has the aspirations. We have to realize that in a lot of aspects in life, simply aspiring to greatness and simply having passion behind it is not enough to actually achieve big goals. I mean, I think of back when I was about 10 years old, I was involved in a 5K race in my hometown. And I started out with incredible zeal. I had a lot of passion. I had high aspirations. The gun went off at the beginning of the race. I was right there at the front at the starting line. I just took off like a rocket. I was in the lead for a few hundred yards. And then slowed down, began to fall back. I had passion. I had high aspirations. But in order to win a race, in order even to run well, you need to prepare for it. You need to have diligence through it. You need to be ready to persevere even when it's hard, even when it hurts. Passion and high aspirations are good, but they are not enough. And that's what Peter is depending on. He's depending on it, when or if temptation comes, he's depending on his spontaneous willpower and his passion to get him through. But when we are in the face of vulnerabilities and temptations and challenges, we can't depend on our spontaneous willpower to get us through. We need to prepare for it like you'd prepare if you really want to run and win a competitive 5K race. You need to prepare and persevere with diligence. But Peter... He doesn't recognize his own, own vulnerabilities here. 
Verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. So Jesus is is getting serious here. I mean, he's already serious, but he's saying, Truly I tell you. This is a statement that would say, Peter, pay attention here. I'm not joking around one bit. Because before the night is through, that's what it's referring to when it's talking about the rooster crowing. Before the night is through, you're going to disown me not once. Not twice, but three times. Peter, I know you're passionate about me. I know you love me. But you're going to deny that you even know me three different times. Peter, though, he's still insisting emphatically, Mark says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I will never disown you. You know, Peter's attitude here reminds me of a line out of the movie Top Gun. You may think, where in the world is he going with that? Top Gun. Uh, it's a movie. It's, it's not a young movie anymore, but the movie uh, features Tom Cruise when he was much, much younger playing the role of Maverick. Maverick is very proud, quite, quite arrogant. It reminds me a bit of Peter. But there's one point in the movie where a commander is getting on Maverick, and the commander says right to this Tom Cruise character, son, your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. Your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. That's exactly what's going on with Peter. He has an ego here. He is incredibly self-confident, incredibly bold, but his ego is writing checks that his body can't cash. He will not be able to follow through on the incredible self-confidence that he's projecting right here. And what's happening then is that he is self-deceived. He is deceiving himself. His self-confidence is blinding him to his own vulnerability. That's why he says... Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You never is a dangerous word. I mean, you, you frequently may hear, okay, you shouldn't use the words always and never. Because there are probably going to be exceptions to that. Especially in the face of vulnerabilities, we should never use the word never. Because that's a, it's a very dangerous word that can blind us to our own weaknesses, blind us to our vulnerabilities. Because we all have cracks or chinks in the armor. We all have areas in which we are vulnerable to attack or to doubt or to to sin struggles. And so using the word never really puts up the blinders and, and, and prevents us from setting up the safeguards that may help prevent us from going off course. I want to read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 12 and 13, because I think it provides a good teaching on this topic of how we respond in the face of temptations. Paul writes, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I mean, verse 12 is key. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Peter was very confident in where he was standing. He, he was sure he was going to make it through. But Proverbs sixteen eighteen says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Because when you put yourself on the, up on the pedestal of pride, you're setting yourself up for a spectacular fall. And that 
is what Peter is doing to himself. Now, he has some help in this from Satan. In Luke chapter 22, a parallel passage uh, when, Peter, when Jesus is predicting this denial, listen to what, what Jesus says to, to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, it's chapter 22, verse 31 of Luke. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And not only is Peter uh, blind to his own personal weaknesses, he's also uh, just downplaying the significance of the spiritual battle. Now it's important for us to, to recognize that it's, it's never going to be healthy for us to say, you know what, I would never walk away with it from God. I've heard people basically say that type of thing, even in sitting in my office, warning them of, you know what, I have an ongoing relationship with them, and I warn them, you know what, the direction you're going right now, I can see your heart's pulling away from God. You're beginning to compromise in these areas. And they're like, no, I'm, I'm going to be good. I'm, I'm faithful to God. Where are they today? Some of them aren't walking with God. So it's not ever going to be healthy to say, I will never walk away from God. It's a great aspiration I think it's important to recognize our vulnerability and and say, you know what? We need God's grace. We need God's strength to support us through this. We need accountability and encouragement from fellow Christians. We need fellowship to keep us moving forward. You may think, you know, I will never have an affair. I'll never become an alcoholic. I'll never uh, be publicly ashamed of Jesus. I'll never embezzle money. I'll never betray a friend. But when it comes to vulnerability, yes, I mean, each of us are weak in different areas, but, but we need to be careful to recognize our vulnerabilities. Not necessarily to say never, but then to put up, instead, just recognize we are vulnerable. Put up those safeguards so that we can remain faithful in the areas that are important to remain faithful in. Peter, in this context, didn't do that. Instead, he set himself up for a, a spectacular fall because he singled himself out he put himself up, up on a pedestal, and he did not reach out for help. Instead, he said, I can do it. And he crashed, which we will see next week. But the cool thing is, the encouraging thing, is that after Jesus was resurrected, he was restored. He becomes that solid rock in which um, the church is, is really built, on which um, Jesus builds the gospel. I mean, Jesus becomes a pillar in the early church. But here, he is blind. Now, I want to just focus for a couple moments on charting a course for faithfulness in our lives. Now, one of the things, all these uh, points are in response to Peter. Rather than being self-centered, we need to focus on being God-centered. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty self not self-explanatory, pretty obvious. It's important to be God-centered because if we are self-centered, we're going to be very needy. We're going to be um, easily defensive. I mean, most people have a sense of needing affirmation and and approval from other people. That's what happens when we're self-centered. But when we're God-centered, we can receive affirmation and approval from God. And that gives us a solid foundation where then we aren't as needy of other people around us. And it makes us much more stable just in all areas of our lives. I think as well about rather than being self-confident, we need to find our confidence in God. Find our confidence in God. A little bit later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to Peter, Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
saying, okay, your spirit's willing. You want to remain faithful, but watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation because your flesh is weak. You are vulnerable, Peter. But he says, watch and pray. Prayer taps us into the power of God. It keeps us connected with him. It helps prepare us to remain faithful to God even through the temptations and the trials. Peter, he fell asleep. He didn't prepare. I think that's one of the main reasons that then he succumbed to the temptation to completely deny even knowing Christ. But when our confidence is in God, when we have that deep prayer connection with him, then it'll be a durable confidence that isn't ebbing and flowing based based on our performance, based on our um, passion and, and willpower. Confidence in God won't let us down. A third uh, key for charting a course for faithfulness is rather being self-deceived, be humble and teachable. Peter was not humble and teachable, even in the face of Jesus. But humility and teachability help us to recognize, you know what, we are vulnerable. And we do benefit from from God's word speaking into our lives and from other people, other strong believers speaking into our lives, helping us follow God faithfully. When we look at Peter, he failed to acknowledge his vulnerability and that led to his failure to acknowledge knowing Christ just a few hours later. When we're going through our lives um, and, and we're, 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 we have pride in, in our lives blinding us, it's kind of like driving through the fog. I mean, you know what it's like to drive through the fog. It's hard to see. It's kind of dangerous. Pride fogs our vision of God, of the world, and of ourselves. Peter, his vision was fogged by pride. And that led to a spectacular downfall a little bit later. But we, for us, we need to recognize, you know what, we are vulnerable as well. And so it's important to recognize those vulnerabilities, to seek God's, uh, God's, the, God's strength and God's guidance through the challenges that we face. And one of the ways I want to do that this morning, we're preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ has done for us to redeem us. But one of the neat practices that the churches sometimes engage in is called corporate confessions. Corporate confessions, we're not, it's not like today, it's not going to be like an open mic time of, hey, everyone come up and share your vulnerabilities and sins. But instead what it is, it's, 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 it's a corporate um, prayer that we read together, confessing our sin to God. Because it's a way to, as a united, united body of Christ, to confess to God, God, we are weak, but you are strong and we need you. And so in the spirit of preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper and of recognizing our vulnerability, recognizing our sin, but also recognizing God's grace, I invite you now to stand. Uh, We're going to have corporate confession up there on the screen. Um, I'll lead us in. Let's let's read this together, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll sing a song in preparation for the Lord's Supper. So let's pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have frequently followed our own selfish ambitions and the desires of our own hearts. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you that with you, 
there is always forgiveness. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, and may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amen. Oh Lord, we do confess that we are prone to wander, that we are vulnerable, that we are weak. Our spirit may be willing, but our flesh, as long as we're on this earth, is always going to be weak. Lord, please help us to recognize our vulnerability and not to just be depressed by it, but instead to depend on the power of your Holy Spirit. Because your spirit is powerful and your word is powerful and you want to give us the victory over sin and death. Lord, help us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper to confess any sin that's in our heart, that it's been in our lives, and to receive your grace. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. was lost in darkest night.